Hello and welcome back to the Sinobubble podcast. First of all, I just want to apologize for the rather large delay in between episodes. I've been in the process of moving back from Hong Kong to the UK for about a month now and we've been bereft of the internet and also any flat services to type on for about a month. We're still in the process of settling down, but I've found myself a little bit of time to complete at least one episode. So this might be it for September, but hopefully after this period, once we move into October, we get more settled and I have a little bit more time, the episodes will become more regular. But that's enough of a life update for now. So let's just move into the episode. So in this episode, what I wanted to do was just wrap up the discussion that we were having about China's relations with the Soviet Union in the first years of the PRC, mainly between 1949 and 1953. So the last episode was specifically about the Korean War and how it affected the relationship between the two countries. The most important thing to remember, I think, is that China was considered to be the younger brother of the Soviet Union, so to speak. The PRC was chronologically founded after the Soviet Union, and it was still a poor and developing nation in the early 1950s. And obviously China was also the younger and smaller of the two nations, and relied a lot on help from the Soviet Union to get on their feet. So I think in this episode what we'll do is we'll just dive deeper into the financial and also a bit of the cultural relationship between the Soviet Union and China which will help us understand a little bit more why China was left to fight in the Korean War with no support and never really complained about that, and also to serve as a foundation for upcoming episodes on the first five-year plan in China, which was adopted almost wholesale from the Soviet Union's five-year plan system and relied heavily on financial and expert assistance from the Soviet Union as well. So unless I've changed my mind at some point, I think I'm going to call this episode Soviet Aid, just because it's a nice, short, snappy title. But I actually hesitate to call what China received as aid for a number of reasons. First of all, they had to actually pay back a lot of what they got in terms of loans and equipment. And often these loans came with quite high interest. And second, there was actually some exchange between the two countries, so it wasn't just a one-way flow of people and money, although the net benefit was basically in China's favour, so aid might not be the best definition, but I think it still might be what we're going to go with just for ease here. So in the last episode, I mentioned that Mao and Zhou Enlai had been to the Soviet Union to visit Stalin in Moscow and negotiate a new treaty that would solidify the political and economic relationship between the two nations. So in February 1950, a short speech delivered by Mao was published in the party's principal newspaper, The People's Daily, part of which read as follows. Quote, During our sojourn in the Soviet Union, we have visited many factories and farms. We have seen the great achievements of the workers, peasants and intellectuals of the Soviet Union in their undertaking of socialist construction. We have observed the work style of combining a spirit of revolution with a spirit of realism and practicality, which has been nurtured among the people of the Soviet Union through the teaching of Comrade Stalin and the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. This has confirmed the conviction which the Chinese communists have always held that the experience of the Soviet Union in economic and cultural construction and its experience in construction in other major areas will serve as an example for the construction of a new China. 
So in this speech, Mao essentially made it clear that he intended to follow the Soviet model of development, both economically and culturally, mainly set up by Stalin. But to do so would mean that China would be dependent on the Soviet Union for guidance and also equipment. So going back to the Treaty of Sino-Soviet Friendship, Alliance and Mutual System that we touched on in the last episode, the majority of it was agreed on the Soviet Union's terms, but that's not to say that China did not benefit at all. We discussed the military terms already in the episode on the Korean War, so let's talk about the economic aspects. After the signing of the Sino-Soviet Treaty, experts were brought in from various fields, including architecture, technology and the service industry, as well as a considerable amount of financial aid from the Soviet Union. At the same time, over 500 Chinese students and party cadres were accepted to study in Soviet higher education schools for reduced fees or given the opportunity to take up substantially subsidised technical internships in factories. In terms of the actual work done, Stalin promised 50 industrialization projects to be carried out in China with Soviet assistance. This was of critical importance, as China was still recovering from the Civil War, World War II, and now the Korean War in the first few years of the 1950s, and so needed rapid industrialization to both reunite the country once again and revitalize the economy and provide jobs and infrastructure. These projects did not actually materialize until a few years later, once the plans for the first five-year plan had been finalized and approved by the Soviet Union in 1953. And there were some more projects added onto the deal as well, but we'll get onto that when we talk about the five-year plan. The Soviet Union also granted China a loan of 300 million US dollars with an interest rate of 1% per year. Some sources say that this was over 10 years, some sources say it was over 5 years, but it doesn't really matter, those were the basic terms. China didn't have to pay the entire loan back in cash, however, as the Soviet Union was also interested in China's abundant natural resources, including rubber and agricultural products. But the loan was significantly less than that granted to Poland just a year before, and the real term amount was reduced further upon the devaluation of the ruble at the end of 1950. Regardless, it wasn't a lot of money, and really it just served to set a precedent for the bitter end of the Sino-Soviet relationship, which happened only a decade later. So in terms of finances, it may seem as if the bigger nation was taking advantage of the still-recovering China, but there were some benefits for China. Trade between the two nations gave a big boost to China's economy. Around 60% of China's trade was with the Soviet Union until the mid-1950s, and mutual trade increased around 6.5 times during this period. In fact, this period in the relationship between the two nations is considered by many historians to be the honeymoon period preceding the death of Stalin and the ascension of Khrushchev from 1953 onwards. That said, the Soviet Union did use the same model of quasi-exploitation that they had used in other satellite socialist countries in Eastern Europe to take advantage of their resources. The Soviet Union also took the opportunity to stake a claim over some territory in Liaoning province in northeast China, leasing the busy and important port of Dalian Harbour, a naval base in Lushun, as well as other mining, oil and railroad concessions that they had previously failed to win from the nationalist government in the 1930s and 1940s. Apparently, these concessions were largely a tactic of Stalinist policies, and were later criticised under Khrushchev as, quote, a mistake, exploitation, and an insult to the Chinese people. 
Some changes were made to the terms of assistance and trade in 1952, when Zhou Enlai visited the Soviet Union once again with a delegation in August of that year. According to contemporary press, the delegation was a great success and many new agreements of benefit to China were made. But looking at the actual results, this celebration seems a little bit overblown. China did regain control over the Changchun Railway in northeastern Jilin province in 1952 as a sort of reward for doing well in the Korean War and now being more trusted by the USSR. However, while the settlement of this long-standing issue was seen as a victory on the Chinese side, who proclaimed it as a sign of Stalin's brotherly unselfish assistance, in reality the return of the railway had been agreed in principle in 1950 before the outbreak of the Korean War. So in fact, China had won almost nothing of substance from the Soviet Union before the start of the five-year plan, either in terms of military or financial assistance. The most China had to gain was a lot of propaganda and good press about the relationship between the two countries, which no doubt helped in deterring the interference of the so-called Western imperialist nations, particularly the United States. However, despite the lack of tangible benefits, the link between the two socialist nations did bear fruit in other ways. Soviet influence was not just limited to financial aid, as I mentioned earlier. Another important area of China's development that benefited from Soviet influence was culture. I'm going to pull the example of art here. I want to put this section here partly to demonstrate how deep the Sino-Soviet link was in terms of culture, but also because this is sort of my area of expertise. The majority of this part is ripped straight from my PhD thesis, so if it sounds like I'm reading from a script even more than I usually do, you'll know why. So to give some background first, the main art style used in the Soviet Union, particularly during the Stalin years, was something called socialist realism. If you've ever seen those oil paintings or posters of strong men in workers' outfits wielding steel or driving trains or holding massive watermelons for some reason, then you'll probably already have a good idea of what I'm talking about. If not, there are two websites that I implore you to check out. The first is sovietposters.com, and the other is chineseposters.net, just the type of inspiring names you'd expect for collections of socialist art. So socialist realist works are all about the atmosphere, grandeur, and serious but hopeful tone. Now, if that sounds hard to imagine, think about how hard it was for the artists at the time who had to try and create such inspiring paintings. If you're lucky, one day I'll tell you all about it when we get to the mid-1950s. These oil paintings and posters were generally created using gouache, which is an opaque form of watercolour painting, with very vivid colours that can be layered once they dry down. But greys and earth tones were the most commonly used in socialist realist paintings, as they reflected the important connection between the people and the earth, as well as the people and industry, which were the main themes of most of the paintings during this period. Most posters depicted working men or women in factory settings or in the fields, producing food and other important materials for the nation, and most importantly, they were very happy to be doing so. Other important themes in paintings were usually those of leaders, such as Stalin or Lenin, or military posters that showed the defeat of Western imperialist aggressors, usually played by the United States. These paintings were laid out in triangle formation, so the main subject would be in the middle, and they'd be highly coloured in details, usually much brighter than the other people or objects in the painting. 
A sense of depth is created by using the central figure as being in the foreground, usually with like a halo of light, with the main subject like really close up and central, and then all of the secondary subjects sort of receding into the background. And these central figures would either be, like I said, the leaders or the workers, the main protagonist of the painting, which is trying to tell a story about how successful and brilliant the socialist nations are. Socialist realism really hit the big time in China, and the driving force behind its uptake was thanks mainly to one man named Jiang Feng. Jiang was a long-time Communist Party member and a radical artist. In the 1930s, he had been part of the radical New Woodblock print movement and was locked up as a result. In the 1940s, he moved to the Communist base in Yan'an and became a teacher at the Lushun Academy of Fine Art. In 1949, upon the founding of the PRC, he was made vice chairman of the Chinese Artists Association, which is sort of like the direct controlling party body for all of the artists. And then in 1953, he became director of the Chinese Academy of Fine Arts, which had moved from, I believe it was Hangzhou, into Beijing, which was now the political capital. From this institution, this is where most of the doctrines for schools on how to carry out art teaching and what artwork should be produced by the professionals who worked through these schools, how they should look, what should be done, basically, what was the direction for socialist art in China. So Jiang Feng was basically the head of the art world in this period, up until about 1957. A fervent Marxist, Jiang really disliked high art styles, such as traditional ink painting, so basically, his ascension marked the beginning of the rejection of Chinese traditional art, you know, the sort of minimalist birds and flowers sorts of paintings that you would usually see, or the uh, landscapes of mountains and things like that, and instead the embracing of Soviet-style works. Apart from Jiang's own love of realism and oil painting, socialist realism was able to spread in China so quickly, in large part due to the economic and political relationship between China and the Soviet Union. There were two more treaties between the two countries that confirmed this influence. The first was the agreement on the conditions for Chinese citizens to carry out production technology practice in the Soviet Union, which was signed on December 6, 1951. And the second was the agreement on the study of Chinese citizens in Soviet higher education institutions, which was signed on September 1, 1952. These treaties basically allowed for the growth of socialist realism in China. So first, it allowed Chinese students to study in the Soviet Union, the first batch of which were sent to study at the Leningrad Repin Academy of Fine Arts in 1953. And then secondly, it allowed for the exchange of materials. From February 1949 to September 1954, there were approximately 3,131 Chinese translations of Soviet technical books, including those on art, published in China. Third, cultural and artistic delegations were arranged to visit exhibitions in the other countries. So beginning with the Soviet propaganda poster and caricature exhibition, which was held in China in April 1951. This was actually the first exhibition of Soviet Union art in China after the founding of the PRC and became the sort of gold standard for organising foreign exhibitions in China. So, even if the early political and financial relationship between the two nations wasn't that strong, the cultural relationship between China and the Soviet Union was so strong that it actually outlasted the political ties. Artists and cultural workers maintained contact with one another even after the Sino-Soviet split, 
and the close relationship with the USSR gave Chinese artists access to other Eastern European trends. China eventually became much closer with countries like Romania and Poland, especially in the late 1950s and early 1960s, but we'll talk about that more in later episodes. If we're talking about the general tone of the Sino-Soviet relationship, however, the financial conversations between the two parties are a good indication of what was to come after the first five-year plan. Chinese leaders were already bitter about the unfavourable agreements that they had come to in the early 1950s, and despite Mao's fervent belief in Stalinist developmental models, he failed to bring along the rest of the high-level communist leaders, and in the end, ended up changing his own mind in the mid-1950s, which then, as we now know, led to an even bigger disaster in 1958. So that's it really for the background on the Sino-Soviet relationship up until the first five-year plan. Before we move on to the first five-year plan, in the next few episodes I want to talk about the sort of furthest reaches of the Chinese empire, or nation, however you want to view it, which include Tibet, Inner Mongolia and Xinjiang. So we're going to be discussing how these further regions were reintegrated militarily, politically, economically, culturally. And that will also serve as kind of a background to when we talk later on about modern China, because I do want to do some modern China episodes on the current events in Xinjiang. To really understand what's going on there, you do have to have that background of the 1940s and 1950s. So hopefully that will be quite interesting and educational for all of us, as I also at the moment don't know too much about it. So intense research is required. So as this episode was quite a short one, I thought I would try and do something interesting today that may or may not become a pattern in later episodes. Uh, Some of you do send me emails, which are really, really nice to receive. So if you hate this section, please let me know and I will just not include it in the future. So I thought one idea would be that if we had a particularly short episode, at the end I could talk about an interesting article, whether it's academic or journalistic, that I'd read recently about China and sort of share that with you and just share sort of my opinions, perhaps a little bit of analysis on it as well, although that might be stretching my own abilities. So this morning I actually read The Economist and there were three relatively interesting articles on China. One was about the um, recovery of Wuhan in the wake of the pandemic and how it's sort of become like a beacon of hope and a tourist city and all of these things. Another article was about the sort of rise of the landlord classes. So the people who had been in power in China prior to the rise of the Communist Party and how their grandchildren now are sort of regaining some of that um, clout. That was quite an interesting one. And then the third one was about politics of poverty. It's the Chaguan article. So I thought today I would talk a little bit about the Chaguan one, because uh, I guess the other ones you could read about in sort of other newspapers, but the Chaguan is usually more specific to The Economist, and it's sort of their take on an interesting contemporary topic. And it has some interesting themes in it. It's not just about poverty, but also about the Chinese Communist Party's cultural and social control mechanisms. So I thought it would be good to kind of look at it a little bit. So the article's called China's Anti-Poverty Drive is Not Disinterested Charity. It's about transforming people's thoughts. Now, you might think that kind of goes without saying, but it's more about the techniques and tactics that they actually use and how what you might call them brainwashing or mind control tactics are actually integrated with social policies so that people feel a natural sense of indebtedness. And this is actually a tactic that 
the Chinese Communist Party have been using since basically their founding. Um, we talked about it a little bit in the Yan'an episode, where we spoke about how, you know, they would go down to these farms and, you know, release people from the control of the landlords and then put people from the Communist Party in place to restore order and give power to the poorer peasants. And then that in turn would make the poorer peasants loyal to the Communist Party. This is a tactic that the Communist Party has been using for many years. And it's, it's just generally a, a Communist Party tactic in any socialist country. You see it in Russia as well in, during the revolution when they send all the kulaks, the rich peasant farmers into Siberia and things like that, get rid of them and then put in place the poorer peasants to take control who are then more loyal to the Communist Party. It doesn't always work. Sometimes it backfires quite drastically, but this is a more modern day example. So I won't read the whole thing because I don't know if that will lead to some sort of copyright strike or something like that, uh, but I'll just read out clips that I think are quite interesting. The article starts by stating that President Xi Jinping has given the order that extreme poverty in China must be eliminated by the end of 2020. And it talks about a specific case in one of the poorest regions of the country in Sichuan province, where the local officials have given Jizu Arimo, who is a 47-year-old widow and a mother of four, her own apartment in this brand new apartment complex, which has been specifically built to alleviate poverty. So she used to live high up in the mountains, and she was deemed officially impoverished. Now, the poverty line in China is 340 US dollars a year, and about 5 million Chinese people sort of fit into that category. So what they've been doing is they've been relocating people and then giving them jobs. So in the case of Jizu, they have moved her to this housing complex in Sichuan. They pay her 550 yuan a month to be a cleaner. So 550 yuan is about 50 quid a month, something like that. But then the article goes on to explain that it's not just about the money that she receives or the job that she has or the house that she's been given because Jidza is kind of one of the people who is on this uh, whirlwind tour stop for government officials and foreign journalists to come around and see how people's lives have been transformed by this policy. And so these foreign journalists go around and they see that on the wall behind her sofa is a big colourful poster of Xi Jinping and it has the caption, be grateful to the party, listen to the party, follow the party. It talks about how, you know, Jesus giving this interview to the journalists, but she's sort of surrounded by um, all of these officials who are making sure that she's saying exactly the right thing. She's sort of been fed lines because she doesn't speak Mandarin that well. She's from the E minority group. She's sort of declaring all of these platitudes. For example, if it weren't for General Secretary Xi, I wouldn't have such a lovely home. And, you know, all of the other houses in this complex have exactly the same thing. So they have these colourful posters of President Xi. They have all of these slogans from the party. Another part of this movement is also the moral education of um, the actual party members as well, the cadres who are in charge of carrying out these policies. And so they're supposed to like lead a good example for um, the minority communities whom they govern. So, for example, looking after their elderly parents you know, making sure that they're looked after, they've been relocated to good housing so that the minority communities will follow the same example. And this sort of intergenerational link will help alleviate poverty in the long term as well. So it's sort of cultivating habits and mindsets as well as just enacting policies, moving people to brand new homes and giving them state jobs. 
The article adds that poverty alleviation is also part of an urbanization scheme. For example, Jiza, other people like her used to live in the mountains, and these places are generally deemed inhospitable. So it says in the past two years alone, nearly 10 million Chinese have been physically relocated from these inhospitable homes in rural areas. Some people have literally just been relocated like 100 yards down the way from that mud home into this sort of brand new brick and mortar house. Many young people are moving to work as migrants, but they find that different people are skilled in different areas. And I thought this line was quite funny. It says the E, who are one of the local minorities in Sichuan, the E are strong and unafraid of heights, enthuses and official. That makes them sought after workers when electricity lines need stringing between pylons. I thought that was um, quite an interesting uh, little clip of cultural sensitivity there. So these cadres also take it upon themselves to make sure that the population is properly educated. So the children learn Mandarin as well as their own native E language. And night schools teach farmers modern agriculture. Women get taught uh, embroidery and other handicrafts and things like that. And it's also in the state's benefit because, as one official says, if poor farmers are not educated and given incentives to work, they will sit in the sunshine in the corner waiting for a government check. As the article suggests, it's sort of a double-edged sword, really, because, you know, you could say that these people are being forced to relocate. Perhaps they don't want to integrate that much. Perhaps they were happy where they were. But at the same time, you can't really romanticize living in unsanitary conditions with no electricity, no running water. I know from my own research as well that many communities do actually want to be more integrated as China's economy rises, as more places modernize, people do feel left out. And so making people feel part of China's economic success is another way to make them feel more Chinese as well. But of course, the political aspects of it can't be overlooked either. So the uh, techniques, for example, putting up these posters in homes, exalting the party, exalting President Xi. It's quite interesting because, you know, you haven't really had this cult of personality with former leaders after Mao. But now we're going back to not just, you know, you must trust the party, but you must also trust President Xi. So it's way more, I would say, about him, about his achievements as well. You know, he is the one to be alleviating poverty. He is the one to integrate these minorities into the economy. He is the one to push forward greater economic development. So yeah, I thought that article was just quite interesting from a perspective of how does China handle social issues and how does it integrate those social issues along with economic policy and also political policy as well to make a sort of more holistic approach to any problem. It's quite interesting, I think, especially in Western countries, because perhaps we are democracies. I'm not sure the reason why. But we usually see problems as detached. So, um, for example, in the UK, we have problems with housing, with health, with education, things like that. And we tend to see them sometimes in some areas, it's an economic problem. In some areas, it's just a housing problem. But really, these things are always a social, political and economic problem. You know, if people don't have access to good housing, then people get pushed out into poorer areas. And that creates a problem for them making a living. So you have more people living below the poverty line. More people living below the poverty line is not only bad for the economy, but also for society as a whole. So perhaps China has actually something to teach us about seeing all problems as a sort of integrated whole. You know, this isn't just an economic problem. This isn't just a social problem. You know, antisocial behavior stems from problems in education, in housing, 
you know, in job availability in, you know, all sectors of the economy. And these are problems that can be fixed if the right political leaders would take the right action. So I just thought that was um, an interesting take. Obviously, I don't agree with all of China's tactics. Um, I don't know how I'd feel if somebody forced me to put a poster of their face up on my own wall. But apart from that, it's just the viewpoint, I think, of Chinese leaders. And perhaps that's why they have, in some cases, you could argue greater social cohesion than we do in Western countries, where democracies are arguably becoming even more difficult to manage as time goes on. So that's it for this episode. I'm going to leave that there for now. Please tell me if you liked or disliked that little section. If you hated it, I will take it out. But I'll probably only do that when the episodes are fairly short, like today, or if I just see something really interesting, like the article that I just told you about. So that's it from me, and I hope you tune in next time. Thanks, guys. Bye.